Christ is risen. Christos Voskres. Christos Celesti. Please be seated. So today, we read the Holy Gospel of the Samaritan woman. And uh, it presents a dilemma to us. Jesus says in this gospel that he is savior of the world. But other times he tells us that this world is not his kingdom. Name the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. The burden of the gospel is actually the resurrection. And it caused not just any resurrection. It had to be the resurrection promised by the prophets who was rise on the third day. Jesus Christ in his own time was an enigma for the Jews were looking for were to the Messiah to establish the messianic kingdom and let Jesus at that time says he's savior of the world but he rejects that thought. He demonstrates to us especially today what he's come but he also told us he's come to save sinners. Now a Samaritan woman you know Samaria we all know the story about Samaria when uh, the scholars tell us supposedly when the Nebuchadnezzar captured all the Jews and took them north, they were stragglers. They didn't get there. And they uh, did not worship, and Jews kept some straggled back too. And Jews decided to build a cathedral, a temple. And, of course, everybody thought that he had to return to the temple. Well, there's all sorts of archaeological studies of the temple. And we've learned from those studies, some claim the temple is not, not the temple because it's in the wrong spot. But certainly, the Samaritan temple was not. And therefore, they didn't do the proper worship, so they were an unclean people. Now, it did not bother Jesus to accomplish his ministry, that he would bring salvation, to quote Jesus, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is a very contemporary message because it not only interprets the fact that it's in the last of the weekly presented Christ entering the temple. And we come upon this gospel. It's ready to us. And uh, all week we've been seeing about Christ coming to the temple. Ultimately, the temple that Christ went to was the right hand of the Father in heaven. But then he came back 
And right on the same week, which we call Bright Week, we see Jesus was visiting with the disciples and apostles and such. And uh, that would go on for 50 days. 50 days is a very sacred number in biblical literature. It's a fullness. So it would be the fullness of his visitation, and then he would ascend. Now for us, it's important that we realize Christ is our king. We have a king. That did not make the Jews happy. His coronation was his resurrection. He proclaimed his kingdom by the resurrection. When he came among us, he called us to to revive ourselves in our faith and do the good things and be part of his kingdom. The kingdom, I hazard to say, is always with us. You're baptized, you're chrismated. The kingdom is already with us. But it's not so easy to just say, well, I'm already in the kingdom. I met a sort of an odd person who insisted that he was not subject to original sin and that he was living in the kingdom. So my response to him was, well, you are subject to original sin. That's why you had to be baptized. I said, you did enter the kingdom. The readings in the fathers about these days talk about the temple. And I want to relate it to our iconostas. So they talk about the north and south doors of the temple. And, of course, the angelic and royal doors. That's what this is here, this uh, this. It has a north and south door, and it has the royal doors or the angelic doors. Some say these are angelic doors and those are the royal doors. But anyway, there's some confusion. But we usually call these the the, uh, royal doors. Everything there is a replica, almost completely, of the temple of old. The seven-branch candlestick, the holy table, the altar, the way the priest prays facing east because we know Jesus will come again. All of a sudden, <laughs> all of a sudden these things are controversial because we have these people who want to simplify liturgy and get rid of many biblical customs and symbols. I'm of the opinion, of course I'm visiting, that our liturgy is perfect It expresses well the liturgy of heaven and the liturgy of the temple. I think it very clear to us. We should study so we know that. So we read the text, especially the priest's prayers at the Eucharist. They mention many, many, many things. First of all, they tell us how we were saved. So the history, especially in Basil, the history of salvation is completely repeated again. And they're telling us that by participating in the Eucharist and receiving the body and blood of the Lord, we are those people of the Israel. We sing for Our Lady, Chinese Splendor, O New Jerusalem. 
for the glory of the Lord is upon you. So we say that to her because she had the glory for the Lord, but it's congratulating her in the song, or in this song, about the resurrection of her son. And she suffered all those things that she suffered like we go through in Holy Week. Precisely. Now let's talk about the Samaritan woman. He made a condition by which he was going to forgive her. And it was simply uh, sin no more. So our greatest problem, I think, as Christians is that we still perpetuate our habits of sin. We shouldn't do that. We have all this given to us, forgiveness, eternal life, a Savior, King of the ages, and yet we have to have the weakness of still sinning. So when I was in the seminary, they taught us, especially those classes on Eastern Christian spirituality, the first thing a person had to do was to give up their sinful ways, you know. And then we had to talk about sacrament of penance and all those things. It seems obvious to me that all of us know that. But we're sort of unruly, even to ourselves at times. And uh, I don't say, Lord, we desert you because we came for sinners. And we're probably, some of us anyway, I don't think we're so bad, but we're probably candidates for forgiveness. You notice the liturgy, only the priest goes through the royal doors. Only he can open and close them, or with the assistance of a deacon, you know, a deacon could go in with him. And he usually doesn't come in here out unless he has something in his hands, the gospel book, the gifts, whatever it may be. And he's entering into the heavenly, heavenly liturgy where he offers these gifts and reads these holy words and celebrates his life in Christ by being the priest. But he doesn't do it for just his own benefit. It's not his hobby or something. It's for the people. It's a gift of God to the people, the priesthood. When he comes out, and ultimately he comes out with the body and blood of the Lord, he gives you food for your journey to bring you to a heavenly kingdom. But even on this earth, we're walking sort of crookedly sometimes. We're not on a path all the time. There is a way to salvation. So some oriental churches, or Byzantine churches, they require their people to go to confession almost immediately before uh, they receive the Eucharist. So they're pure, washed, and beautiful, and they have that baptismal robe on. I remember when uh, years ago uh, we would have First Communions before we returned to our ancient tradition of of, uh, baptism of infants and communion at that time. And uh, we would have just such splendid celebrations of the little boys and 
the girls, the girls in their beautiful communion dresses, and the boys in the white suit, and they'd have bands on their arms and flowers, and the day before they'd go to confession. When I was a pastor, I'd take them all out for lunch after confession to celebrate their first confession. Well, we've altered that a little bit, going back to our ancient tradition, but uh, I, at the parish level, I always had the celebration also of first confession. It was almost parallel to the same celebration we would have had with, you might have the first communion. They do that throughout the Eastern Church now. We celebrate the fact that we can restore our baptismal robe. So, some of you have been here, others are not, when the monk becomes in especially solemn vows, life vows, he comes to the church and barefooted and nothing much on except his baptismal robe. And that's supposed to be clean and neat. And he comes in to be robed in the habit of the monk. He's already received one part of it, but it's going to be complete now. And uh, the habit of the monk uh, puts him in his new state in life as one who lives perpetually in the kingdom by embracing the cross. So Christians must embrace the cross to respond to forgiveness and reconciliation in their life. So you can remind your children of this too when they're naughty, you know, not that they're out of grace or anything like that. That's not the case. But you can remind them of their baptismal robe. You might show it to them. The old country, they had large baptismal robes. And the babies here, they have these little dinky things. Because when a man got married or a woman, they took part in a cloth of their baptismal robe and put, uh, sewed it into their wedding clothes as the sacrament of marriage being completion of their commitment to Christ. Of course, Christ made that appearance, his first miracle in Cana, trying to elevate the meaning of marriage, not to tear it down, but elevate it. But of course, the monk is the superior to married people, and he wears this, these robes. And they get the, at that time, they get the pimmon, too. It's, a, it's like a scapular, pretty big robe. And that is putting on Christ. So he's another Christ. I really wish the day would come uh, that they would just uh, make the, that, that um, monastic profession uh, tell the people it's a sacrament, it is. And we have many sacraments in the church that are, they've defined seven of them, but there's many, many more. Sacrament means a sign that gives grace to a person. And certainly the monastic profession does that. And with that goes responsibility. Just like with marriage, there goes responsibility. So this woman, this Samaritan woman, they talk about water. She's giving water to Jesus. Water is always a sign of life. 
and the depth of the well in the gospel means it was pretty fresh water. It was way down there. And uh, I've many times I've seen a picture or something where a well went dry. You see this poor woman or a poor man getting a big long ladder going down in the well to bring up some fresh water. And around here, you know, if there's not much water, this is an agricultural community, people have to sell their livestock because there's not enough water, and they don't get half decent price for it either. But all of that water is shifting around, and getting water for Jesus is saying this, there is a source of living water, lives gives life, of course it's the sacraments. It's obvious what it is. He's trying to tell her, I don't know when, how he settled that problem, but he was telling her, you know, just find out which one of these guys is your husband. Go stay with him. And it happens in canonical annulments sometimes, or get our permission to marry in church when you've been previously married. The only way you really can get rid of your spouse is if, uh, is if they die. This marriage is not in heaven. There's no taking or giving of people in marriage in heaven. Monastic life is actually a heavenly life. So we say we live the life of the angels. Not that we're angels, but we praise God like they do in heaven. And they have a great dignity in the heavenly kingdom in the liturgy if they were a good monk and they did well at their praises, and they were obedient, and they wore their habit. They did all those things to live heaven on earth. I met people uh, in confession, usually, that lament their life here. Because they long for a holy life. And I remember uh, recently, at the, uh, I gave a conference to the priest, and you know, the priest's life is hectic. The monastics, our life is a little bit hectic, but we schedule everything so we can get our prayers in. And we're watched over by the abbot. And he knows his monks are trying to live the angelic life. So you, these people long for heavenly, they long for holiness. They're thirsty for holiness. And they think they're falling from the goal, they miss the mark. In Greek, a sin is to miss the mark. Well, you got to pick up yourself again and go on. That's why we got the sacrament of penance. But you not, must not give up because Christ died for we sinners. Now, what should the life of a sinner be once he repented? It should be perfect. A perfect life a life absorbed into the divine energies, a prayerful life. I remember how easy it was to live a good life in the seminary. Well, for me anyway, there were no, uh, there were no temptations. And we had liturgy every day, and we had the confessor was in the confessional every day, and... Uh, Received our Lord every day, and all we read was studying holy things. 
to talk to the priest, you know, you get out in the pastor, and I say, sometimes you forget your, what your ministry means. So I reminded them that when the priest is called to anoint the dying and brings Holy Communion, that's prayer. When the priest is celebrating liturgy, that's tremendous prayer. When he picks up his prayer book and prays, that's prayer. So oh, people look at these things as obligations. I think that's wrong. It's our privilege to further our life in Christ. So I asked the priests to be careful how they did those things. Don't do them routinely and don't cut the prayer. Take your time. Say the prayer meaningfully. And comfort the, the poor soul that's suffering with your prayers. That you are all, even on the earth, doing God's will angelically. And the person that receives the sacrament not only is getting uh, grace, sanctifying grace or divine energies, but also that person is praying too. So people say to you, well, what, what did I do wrong that's happening to me? Why is my life this way? And I say to them, you're a holy person, and you're, we all grieve with you at your pain and suffering. Nobody likes that. Same time I says, you're in union with Christ on the cross. And my mother, you know, she was, she had very bad lungs. And uh, the doctor told me she, she'd been 40 years younger. They'd give her a transfer, but they couldn't do that. She was too old. And she'd say to me, what did I do wrong to do this? Well, I don't know what she did wrong anyway. That's none of my business. She's my mother. I said, Mother, you're in your passion. Jesus did not get to Easter Sunday without the passion. And much of that passion is the way we live our lives, the way we treat each other, how patient we are and how prayerful we are. Now, we have the New Testament. I know, you know, I've had several new cars. I've never bought anything with a new car, never, because I didn't want somebody else jalopping. And I figured it out this way. If, if I buy an old car, it's going to cost me money to keep it up. To buy a new car, I have to pay it up front, but I'm going to have something I can depend upon. And I've had cars a long time. You know, my Volvo that blew up. I was 22 years old. It served me well. But anyway, he gave us a manual. Like when you get your new car, they give you this big manual, and another manual, how you're supposed to get certain things done to it. And the New Testament is the manual. It tells us, Jesus tells us how to live this life. And you have priests among you. And you have religious, you have people who are Examples of living the religious life, which belongs to all of us. So don't think to yourself, with well, the monks and those priests, no, they're the holy ones. They have a hard time because of the demands of the world. Keep life simple. Keep life prayerful. Go to confession frequently. 
rejoice in seeing the body and blood of the Lord. Sometimes I was in the military a long time. I'd go to some isolated tour of duty, and there weren't any Catholics there sometimes at all, but I was the chaplain, so I had to go there, and I could deal with the, the men. And uh, they were hurting because they're away from their families, their children. Some of them went on these isolated tour duties to get away from their families instead of solving the issue. And uh, some of them were drinking. Some were doing naughty things. And I, th I think what they forgot is the cross, the way of the cross that led to the resurrection. Now, I don't think the Samaritan woman, and you know, she didn't know about that cross. It wasn't in historical. It wasn't in the place. I don't know how she formed her conscience, but she certainly knew she shouldn't have seven husbands. So she probably said, well, how am I going to live if I don't have a husband? And I, I'm sure she could have got, under Jewish law, she could have been divorced by one of her husbands. If you remarry after that, it says in the Bible, you're committing adultery. So now we, this Catholic church we're in, we live with, they give annulments, and they give the dissolutions of marriages, and they send you a letter and say, well, you can get married in church. I don't think that's the idea. Are we living like the Samaritan woman? I don't condemn these people. God's judging. But there should be one husband and one wife. And if one of the other dies, they should live the rest of their life in prayer for their partner that they've lost. I think that's a superior way. In the early church, many couples lived together without the benefit of marital embrace. They did some parish, and some of those saints, they married a non-believing non person, and they converted them. And there's lots of stories about that also, which we won't mention. But the point is this. She hadn't chosen the best way. And Jesus knew that. Because he was God. And he wanted her to choose a better way. All of us must choose the best way we can. All of us have pain. All of us have difficulties in life. Those are just scars on your soul, beautiful scars, that you've lived through these difficulties and came out a beautiful Christian, came out a follower of Christ because you prayerfully made the right decision. Some people, you know, they think they're good Catholics, and you know, I'm sort of tough, you know that. I don't think you can ever call yourself a good Catholic because Jesus said in the Gospel, when you've done everything, you've done nothing. Compared to his glory and the gifts he's going to give you. 
Now, a few, a few years ago, there were two brothers, and they were in La Trobe. La Trobe is a huge monastery in Pennsylvania. And the Pittsburgh Packers play uh, practice on their playing field there. The men would like to know that. So anyway, it's where they practice. And the two brothers, they went into religious life, and they've lived a very simple, humble life as brothers. And they lived a long time, and one died, and the next one, right the next day, died. And they both went to heaven together. They chose a wonderful way of life. Sometimes you, in the parish, next church over was the Orthodox Church, Holy Trinity. We were Holy Trinity, Slovak Church. They were in the Holy Trinity, Orthodox Church. And anyway, they had a funeral. So, a strange funeral. This man's wife died in the hospital. And he came home, and he laid down and died. And on Monday morning, the priest had the two coffins and the, and the funeral. You may not think that's romantic, but I think that's terrific. I'm sort of different, you know. You give me time, you know, a really wonderful couple, or they're attached to each other, really, by their children, by their suffering, and by their mutual love, which is not easy. But it's very impressive when you find out one dies, the other one sits down and dies too. Didn't want to be alone. I remember my grandmother, Baba, my grandfather, we came home from the hospital and he was still alive when we left, but they called us right away. He'd fallen asleep in the Lord, St. Joseph's Hospital. And she sent, we went in there. She went in first. And they had the, these uh, curtains around the bed. And then she went in here and she grabbed him. And she said, Joe, how could you leave me? When she lost him, within eight years she was gone too. Not right away, but she lost him. She lost her zest for life. And they were very close together. They lived very good Catholic life. They had a hard time, too. They came from Europe with nothing. They didn't die with nothing. They left all of us something. So this, merit, this Samaritan woman, she's really missing the point of marriage. And she really is missing an opportunity of sanctity. We don't hear about too many holy people in marriage because it's sort of a, a national custom to make fun of married people, but it's wrong. I think this parable, Samaritan woman, tells us three, two or three things. Remember one. Practice the royal highway. Go towards the royal glory. Secondly, 
if you not, can't do it by yourself, well, if you have a partner, be faithful. Thirdly, for those who live this life, which is difficult, I sometimes think the monks have an easier time, but the monks are supposed to be mystics. It's a challenge. You too are supposed to be mystics. Your house is to be a house of prayer. And you should cling to each other like you were sewn together. And God knows these days you have to pray for your children because they're going all over the place. They're just falling apart. I'll tell you this. The greatest failure in the United States is poor marriages, which the government, government promotes. Should not be easy divorce. Should not tell people, well, you can change your partner anytime you want to. We're free now. I can't imagine getting a letter in the mail and it says there, your marriage has been dissolved. First of all, in the Catholic Church, the only person that can dissolve a marriage is the Pope. And he doesn't do it. Secondly, it's a big rigmarole. So when we were a couple come in, they, their marriage broke up, they're unhappy, they want to get away from each other, and they're fighting with each other, going to arbitration, all this stuff. And they're very they're very unhappy. Same with the religious, you know. The religious leaves the, the monastery or the convent, wherever the case may be, it means they've lost their first love. I'll tell you one more story, then I'll be quiet. I was scrubbing the floor in St. Somethodius downstairs, and this man came in. And he wanted to pray in the church. So he came down there. He says, can I pray in the church? He had a lady with him and four children. And I said, well, certainly you can. He says, just go up in the church and pray. And he went there. So his wife and four children, I went up to the office and was watching over things. And uh, she says, you know, He's the next priest. Of course, you know, I don't like that. Because I keep your commitments. So she's complaining, no, he's, his heart has never belonged to me. I says, we have four children. Let them love you. And then she keeps complaining. I said, remember, he married you but his first love was the church. Stay with your first love. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.